Groovy makes some of my favorite alcohol-free social drinks, and I will most definitely be stocking up this holiday season. Specializing in beers and wines, basically everything they come out with really hits the spot, from hazy IPAs to creamy stouts to an award-winning bubbly rosé, which is my personal go-to for any celebratory occasion. Groovy are all about bringing the high vibes to the Sober Curious community, And even better, all their wines are gluten-free, sulfite-free, and contain no added sugars, with a maximum of 60 calories per serving, and made with simple, natural ingredients. Groovy is a great option for anybody looking for healthy holiday alternatives. You can get your Groovy direct at www.getgroovy.com. That's Groovy spelled G-R-U-V-I will find them in a variety of specialty and liquor stores throughout North America. Use their store finder to discover a stockist near you. You can also use the code SOBERCURIOUS10 to get 10% off your first online order. And if you feel like getting creative, they are always sharing fun mocktail recipes at GetGroovy on Instagram. Welcome back to the Sober Curious podcast. It's me, your host, Ruby Warrington, and my guest today is the spiritual teacher and author, Kate Johnson. Kate's new book is called Radical Friendship, and I knew I wanted to have her on the podcast as soon as I read it. I don't know about all of you, but closing out 2021, I have been feeling the impact of 18 months of social distancing. In the past few months, especially, I found myself questioning, who are my real friends? Have I been a good enough friend to people during this time? And what kinds of friendships do I want to invest in going forward? This process has reminded me a lot of how it can feel navigating your new social landscape after you quit drinking. One of the biggest questions I hear people asking when they get sober curious is, am I going to lose all my friends? And well, Kate also celebrated 10 years of sobriety this year, so she is perfectly placed to speak to this. We also talk about why friendship is so important why these relationships are often devalued compared to family and romantic ties, and how we can all be better friends to one another. During the course of our conversation, I also mentioned my new book, Women Without Kids, which is not out for a while. But if that title sparks interest in you, I will be writing about various themes that I mention in the book on my personal newsletter, which you can sign up for at my website, www.rubywarrington.com. But you are here today for my conversation about radical friendship with Kate Johnson. Here it is. Kate, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, It's my pleasure. I'm so happy to be here. So before we started recording, I shared with you that I was going to do this whole spiel about why it was so important for me to have you on the podcast um, and how grateful I was to receive your book, Radical Friendship, when I did a couple of months ago. So I'm currently neck deep in my new manuscript. It's a completely different subject matter. My new book is called Women Without Kids. And I was working during the summer on a chapter on the concept of found family Mm -hmm. and how when we don't have biological offspring of our own Mm -hmm. and we're not necessarily connected to other families through our children, the concept of found family takes on added importance mm. and the people who kind of, you know, come into our lives and build out our biological family connections, fill in the gaps often, are very, very important to us. Um, and I realized as well, whilst writing this chapter, that these connections, these found family connections are vitally important to anybody. 
regardless of whether we have children, regardless of what our relationship is with our family of origin. Our found family connections are actually hugely, hugely important to our overall well-being, our sense of belonging, the connection that we feel to other people, our sense of purpose and meaning. It's really at the heart of it all, this idea of community, I suppose. And then as I'm writing and uncovering all of this, I started to get really depressed because looking at the world that we're living in, I just began to realize how our, um, our community connections and our sense of community is so eroded mm. in these uber self-sufficient, uber convenient, uber individualistic lives that many of us lead. And then <laughs> layer on the kind of compound effect of 18 months of social distancing. And honestly, when I was nearing the end of this chapter, I was in a really, really low place. And even more so, I'd been able to connect this deep feeling of emptiness and lack of belonging to the feeling of emptiness that I believe many of us are trying to fill when we reach for substances, mm -hmm. when we reach for alcohol. You know, Johan Harry is a journalist who did a very famous TED talk called The Opposite of Addiction is Connection. Mm -hmm. And I never really got it. But honestly, deep diving deep into this piece of writing, I really felt it. I could feel almost this physical sense of emptiness, which I realized was absolutely a lack of community in my life. And obviously exacerbated because we've been through this period where we've just been so disconnected and separated. You know, I was sharing again before we got on the recording. I haven't seen any of my biological family for almost two years now. Um, so many of my friends have moved out of the state where I'm living and pretty much all of my kind of community connection has been online for the past two years. Mm -hmm. And as great as that is, that we've actually had the option to stay connected is a poor substitute for, you know, what we experience when we're actually in regular contact with people. And again, just noticing how pandemic aside, we live in this, these kind of lives, we live these lifestyles that are, we've almost got to a point where we don't need other people. We have apps and we have online services. We have text therapy mm. and all of these convenient ways of kind of connecting and having our needs met that don't actually require the real heart work of connecting and communing with other humans. So that sets up, that sets the scene for where I'm at when your book arrives in the mail <laughs> And I devoured it in a weekend because I was just so relieved to find that there was somebody addressing this very directly, this deep human need that we have for community. You offer in your book um, a real, you know, you talk about why it's so important. You offer really practical tools and meditations for people to really think about how to create radical friendship in their lives. And beyond that, you talk about how important our friendship connections and our communities are for creating social change, which is, I think, a really, really powerful recipe for all of us, because I know I'm not the only one who's been feeling this deep, deep sense of disconnection and unbelonging in the world. So perhaps to kick off, I would just love to hear um, what you think about, I mean, I know books take years to, to bake, yeah. and so you didn't time for this book to be coming out on the tail end of a pandemic. <laughs> but I wonder um, if you could share a little bit about, yeah, what you think about the fact that this, this book has come out now, where we're at in terms of community 
um, and just where you think we can start to how we, how we can start to move forward from here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, um, you know, first, thank you so much for reading it, and it's really like such an honor to hear um, your reflections and. Um, yeah, I'm excited for your book too. <laughs> and um, let me back up and say, um, I've been working on this book for a lot of years. <laughs> I got um, asked to write the book, you know, uh, gosh, 2014, 2015, something like that. I think 2015 is when I signed the contract. And um, uh, when I did, I asked the publisher like, oh, how long should it take to write this? And they were like, oh, six months. And I was like, great. And I just... <laughs> That was not true for me, uh, certainly. And so, yeah, it does take so long. And it was really, um, uh, it was a little anxiety producing watching the um, just changing seasons of events in a political landscape as I was working on the book. Um, I think I started writing it in earnest and right around the time that the, um, of the 2016 election and, every you know few months i kept thinking gosh this would be a great time for the book to come out like dang i wish i was finished now it would be perfect to come out now um and so i feel like the 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 topic of you know how we enter into and sustain wise relationships and really the search for um, you know in this case ancient wisdom that can help us um to fortify our friendships so that we can you know be well and so that we can not be alone and so that we can you know ideally um you know stay together and gather power long enough to affect social change you know i had some experience especially early in my life uh really working with um, diving deeply into social change work and um being a part of uh, direct actions and um i had you know a series of political homes that i was very invested in and um in those spaces, I found that there was such a incredible, like truthful and nuanced articulation of what was what was going wrong at the systemic level, you know, in our society. And um, somehow a lack of alignment between that analysis and how we were engaging with each other as friends and colleagues and human beings, you know, it was like we were against these kind of transactional corporate relationships, but within our communities, we sometimes just like didn't see each other or used each other or disregarded our human needs right and then um similarly being engaged in um, spiritual communities sometimes found that like while there was this incredible um commitment to inner work and uh, accessing wisdom and compassion at this very granular um uh, deep internal level that that like learning didn't always make its way into our relationships in this integrated way. And so there's this, like, I I could see this kind of liberation sandwich of like on one side, you know, the personal practice, and then on the top, you know, this, the, the, the structural analysis and really wanted to just um, explore for myself and, and hopefully, you know, um, in collaboration with others, this middle part of like, what are the relationships that make that, make that, um, that, (laughs) I don't know if this is a good word, you know, analogy, liberation sandwich work, you know, what is it, what is it that actually helps it to stick together? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. How do we, we might have, um, we might be doing personal sort of 
healing work or spiritual work where we're connecting to ideas about being part of a greater whole. Mm -hmm. But then if that's not translating into our actual relationships with the people who are in our home and then in our maybe our work community and then in our wider community and then yeah. our friendship groups, what does it, how does it actually impact the world? Totally. And, you know, what we were saying about your experience in the pandemic of, um, and, uh, and of writing this text um, that you're working on and just finding that it was getting a little bit, you know, just depressing and like, wait, where are my relationships? And I actually want more from them. I had the same experience working on this book where there were a couple of mm-hmm. times where I was writing, I was thinking, man, do I have any friends? Like, am I just a shitty friend? Like, what is that, you know? And I realized that, um, it, it, um, you know, I certainly didn't write the book to like shame myself or other people, you know, and I think that can come up when we look at a book on friendship, like, oh man, I'm not sure if I'm doing this right. Um, and I think that we're, you know, many of us are struggling to figure out. I don't think we live in a society that really supports these kinds of relationships because they don't have like a, you know, necessarily like a monetary value or they're not, you know, um, they're not, um, don't even give us the social capital of like, you know, having a, a child or a partner in many cases. And so, um, and then in some ways, I think that's why, that's part of why I feel it's so radical to actually pay attention to them, right? Because they're outside of these kind of transactional um, systems of relationship that, that reduce people to, to things, right? It's a way of being human together again, um, that I think is so important. And, um, and yeah, like over the the pan, I mean, <clears throat> so when the book came out, you know, of course it was, it was August and um, yeah, we, it was what we hoped was the tail end of the pandemic, but we'd also experienced these like series of really, um, you know, intense um, moments of reckoning, you know, society in, in our society, right. That murder of George Floyd and the real, um, uprising and awakening around um, racism and injustice and the carceral state. And then um, I think a, an awakening that's still unfolding around climate crisis. And, you know, um, one of the things I experienced, and I'm, I'm, I'd love to hear what happened for you um, around this, but it seemed like um, as a result of the kind of making visible of all these societal um injustices and um, forms of oppression that suddenly, you know, were, were staring us in the face. Um, some people had been living in them for a really long time and some people were just waking up to them. Um, it was one of the first times I think that um, I saw like a fear, uncertainty in a lot of my interpersonal relationships about how we would, how those societal um, experiences would make our way their way into our friendships and how we would navigate those you know Mm -hmm. like there's feelings like oh my gosh am I gonna lose this person now because of this this experience of what's happening are we still going to be able to talk to each other and how do we talk to each other especially when we're talking to each other across differences and you know identity or lived experience um and so yeah I I I saw that in my relationships. I was hearing a lot about that from my students of like, wow, things are different now. And, um, I don't know what to say, or, um, I'm I'm not sure if I should reach out or not, you know, Mm. um, or, or I feel called to speak up, you know, to, um, a friend or family member who is, you know, maybe being harmful in ways they don't, they don't understand or, or, um, aren't present to. And how do I do that? Mm. Yeah. I think, I think what's happened over the past couple of years, we're just, I'm just starting to unpack like how this has impacted 
me and my relationships. And I feel like we may be doing it for some time. And I, I hope that some of these teachings can be a resource as we start to navigate, you know, what, what relationships mean now. Yeah. The book is a huge resource and it's interesting to hear that while you were writing it, it was sort of reflecting to you all of the ways that you maybe haven't been a great friend or you've been like, quote unquote, getting it wrong. I find this whenever I'm in a writing process too, I'll write, reach a point where I'm like, I want to, I want to offer advice or my insights on this. And well, actually the truth for me is that I've done a kind of shitty job in this area. And <laughs> this is showing me something that I need to look at. Maybe I need to actually walk some of this talk before I put it in the book. And mm-hmm. that's definitely happened for me with the current book. And, and, and it sounds like it was similar for you, like where the text that you're writing is actually calling you into like, hey, you can do better in this area, you know, oh, yeah. and then you have an actual, you have a, a really <laughs> concrete reason to, in the name of research, I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to risk saying the wrong thing. I'm going to ah, eek, start that difficult conversation or I'm going to, you know, and because I have to, because I owe it to this work, you know? So, mm-hmm. but yeah, absolutely. I think with everything that's occurred um, with the social justice kind of uprisings that we've seen in various different kind of areas over the past, well, let's say five, six years even, yeah. but coming to a peak probably in 2020 because people's attention were very much focused because yeah, we, we were all travel, we locked down there was nowhere else to look yes <laughs> I mean yeah I think we've absolutely and I've definitely experienced that in my life wondering if oh is that person not texting me back because I'm now longer now no longer part of like the right group or like they assume that I'm not gonna understand or and do, do I bring it up or am I reading too much into it there's so much of that strange those strange communication kind of crunchy points, you know, which it takes so much courage to just kind of bravely ask or even speak what might be our uncomfortable truth in those situations. And I think this book is absolutely an amazing resource, not least because it's just such a reminder of how important this part of our lives is. You know, it was a question I had much further down my list of questions. But um, again, I really noticed how whilst I was working on this chapter on found family, we sort of automatically prioritize biological family, a spouse or romantic partner, you know, our 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 relationships with our children Mm -hmm. without thinking we'd sort of prioritize and privilege these relationships over our other connections. Mm -hmm. But actually, we need, we need our friendships as the sort of the glue that almost holds everything else together, you know, because I think a lot of the time our friendships are the place that we get to connect with all the different parts of ourselves and all the different and perhaps even the most, I wouldn't say most authentic, but, you know, when I'm with my partner, I'm his wife. When I'm with my mother, I'm her daughter. Mm. When you're with your child, you're their mother, you know, whereas within our, with our friendship ties, there's a bit more freedom perhaps to just be us. I don't know. That's a bit of a reach maybe. (laughs) No, that's so cool. I hadn't really thought about it that way, but yeah, there does seem to be because the role is flexible and the role is kind of open to be kind of defined and recreated, you know, within the relationship as we each grow, that there's not as, as much fixity there. That's really cool. Well, maybe Um, there's a different sort of expectation. There are certain you know, it means something very specific to be a good daughter. It means something very specific to be a good 
wife. Right. There can be so much projection. Exactly. When I say it means something specific, I mean, like culturally, like there's so much messaging and conditioning around those roles. But within friendships, it can mean lots of different things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate you saying that. I feel like it is um, it is open for definition you know mm. i think that there's some it's kind of like a, a um like a fortunate side effect of friendship having been devalued in our societies that there's actually right. not so much expectation around right it. right and that's you know i think that's part of what i wanted to do in this book is to kind of elevate and recover the the place of friendship in our lives and to yeah. say oh actually not only you know and it's not only us like the buddha said like this is this is this is it like this is how you practice liberation is through friendship um which is just a statement that blows my mind, but I think it's true the more I more I lean into it. And then, um, yeah, that uh, because societally we haven't placed all of this kind of um, weight or if not a sense of, you know, what, what a friendship has to be, or maybe it's like yeah, the, the sense of expectation for friendship is very low. Like, um, I think there is this opportunity to, to redefine it and, I think what the, I think the Buddha was even redefining it in his time. And I think what, what he was saying to us about friendship is that this is a relationship where we are committed to one another's liberation. You know, like it's not just we're hanging out or we happen to go to the same elementary school. And so we've known each other forever, but there's this commitment. Like we want, we, I want to be free. You want to be free. We want to be free together mm-hmm. and that we're willing to do the, the I, I love you, you said it earlier, the heart work. Like we're, we're willing to show up for the heart work and we want to show up for the heart work because we understand that is, that is the activity of, of freedom. Um, and yeah, that I, I love what you said about the level of courage that it takes to do that because it's sometimes we have to um, come into contact with our own discomfort around, you know, asking a question that we think we maybe should know the answer to or um, bringing up something that doesn't feel good and we don't know why and we're not sure if it's just us or setting a boundary, you know, with someone who we haven't ever done that with before. Um, so it, it does require often stepping into risk, even, you know, starting a friendship just to say mm. like, hi, do you want to hang out? <laughs> I think you're really cool. You know, like that, know. that, that statement of like, you know, I just, I, I, I like I, you. <laughs> yeah. Do you like me? You know, exactly. I, I immediately think of myself like in seventh grade, like, you know, kicking my toe into the mud and being like, Hey, can I have your phone number? You know, do you want to hang out? Um, so that level of just kind of like, you know, it's, it's, it's courage, but it's also vulnerability. It also invites us into um, this beautiful part of what it is to be a human being, like our our fundamental innocence, like that part of us that just wants to love and be loved um, and mm. doesn't actually, not for any reason other than that we, it love saves our lives, you know? Mm. And, um, and I'm excited about that that part of friendship. I also think, you know, in addition to the courage that you bring up, that it requires this, um, this level of attention, you know, um, just to even notice, oh, something doesn't feel right, or oh, this person hasn't called me back, and not to brush it under the rug, and not to just like, okay, next thing, you know, next, (laughs) next tweet, next scroll, next, you know, Google Doc, or whatever, uh, next email, but actually like, oh, this, I notice this is happening for me and I, I care enough about myself and my friend to pay attention and to actually um, speak up about what my experience is. Um, yeah. And it sounds, I don't know if it sounds like simple or obvious, but I just find that that's um, in a world where 
even in a pandemic, we've managed to increase our pace, <laughs> you know, to be able to pay attention and um, give space for what we actually feel in relationship feels also quite radical to me. Exactly. And I think also in a time when friendship, when we think about Facebook friends, friendship has become, I think, extra disposable because mm -hmm. the impression that social media gives us whether we're consciously aware of it or not, is there are plenty more where they came from. Oh, look, I have 10,000 friends on social media. So what does that one friendship matter? It's, we're not necessarily consciously thinking that way, but I think one of the kind of compound effects of this social media landscape that we're navigating a lot of the time is just this idea that like, I'm connected to all of these people. So it's fine if I lose one. You know, right, right. it makes me think the the quote from the Buddha makes me think about, I was reading an article with Greta Thunberg. I think she just turned 18 and the headline, it was in the Guardian was like a quote from her. The only things that matter are climate and friendship. <gasps> she I know. Yes. I, I should send her. it to you. I should send it to you yes, because she really do. is like these. And again, I think it comes back to that sense of like, we need we're facing what can seem like such hugely insurmountable problems as mm -hmm. a human race right now. And solid sense of solidarity that I'm not in this alone and that I can risk putting my neck on the line because I will be supported in that. It's just so hugely, hugely important, you know, mm -hmm. on so many different levels, but on a really primal level, like my safety, my sense of safety relies on me knowing that there are people who've got my back, you know, totally. it really, really does. Wow, that's it's incredible that she said that. I didn't know. Thank you for sharing that with me. And and um, yeah, you know, I I was talking about this with a friend um, around this recognition of climate and um, how much spiritual maturity that's how he said actually takes to be able to look mm. look this um, this crisis in the face. And um, as I was thinking about what. Greta said, and then hearing you, yeah, I'm like, oh, and actually also um, could really be helped by people who are by our sides and willing to be, you know, to know that um, we are not alone responsible for putting out our on our cape and going out there and fixing this whole thing, you know, and that actually that's not even possible, mm -hmm. but that um, somehow with folks by our sides, we can, and, and I might even need someone by my side to hold my hand when I just look at the, the you know, devastating reality of what we're facing together. Um, mm -hmm and to help me not turn away you know um yeah. and it and it I, yeah i love that she said that because i think one of the things that friendship offers is this potential for this um, um like a balanced relationship to reality where we're able to say together okay this is what's happening and also um i'm not gonna we're not gonna abandon each other you know mm. um and that there's something about that relationship that could make almost anything bearable, I think. Um, Absolutely. And uh, and to help us, you know, work with our fear, um, mm -hmm. which is um, so much harder when we try to do it alone. Oh, it's virtually impossible. Yeah. It's virtually impossible, I think. Yeah. So to to bring this into the context of Sober Curious, I think um, one, one of the biggest fears that people have when they decide to change, make a change in their, in their drinking life, because so often alcohol is at the heart of their social connections. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest fears is, am I going to lose all of my friends? Yeah. Am I going to stop being invited to things? Am I going to have any social life anymore? Am I still going to even like these people? These are immediately, again, not necessarily conscious 
in the first instance, but quickly becoming so, I think, when people when people really consider making this change, mm-hmm. which again can seem like a kind of it can look on the surface like quite a practical change. I'm just going to step away from alcohol. But actually, when you consider the role that alcohol fulfills for many of us in our social lives, it can have huge ramifications. And my response to that is typically, yes, your friendship group is going to completely change. <laughs> and that's okay. <laughs> Um, (laughs) because yeah, if, so if alcohol has been the, the main social glue, it, those friendships will be tested when it's no longer present. And you may well find yourself wanting to socialize in different ways, wanting to socialize in different places and potentially with different people. Mm -hmm. Um, and I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that fear that people may have when contemplating making a big change and it could be any change. It could be, I'm, I really want to get deep into meditation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, it could be, I want to go live in a different city. Any big change is going to impact our friendship group. And I wonder if you could speak a bit to that fear and perhaps offer any um, words of advice for people who are maybe navigating that in their lives. Yeah, I think that's so true. I loved how you brought that up because it is true at this fundamental fear of if I change, how is this going to change my relationships? And, um, and do I want to change enough? Do I want that change enough that I'm willing to risk finding out that these relationships can't change with me? You know, mm-hmm. um, oh, it's a big one. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking back into my own experience. Um, yeah, I just celebrated uh, ten years sober back in July, and so um, I I know that that was a big um, fear for me as well. But I'm thinking. Um, even back further. So I, I definitely got into like deep into meditation and um, yoga um, before I before I wanted to transform my relationship with alcohol and drugs. And um, that was kind of a trip, you know, to be like really, really deeply into like Buddhism and like drinking all the green juice and also like partying really hard and like kind of um, hating myself. And so like the um, the, you know, Early on, a lot of the reason why I wanted, this is not the only reason, but part of the reason why I showed up to meditation classes in person and I didn't just try to like, I mean, that back then it was like a CD, you know, you could like <laughs> do like an audio meditation in a CD. I wanted to make friends with other people who wanted to meditate, you know, and I thought that they would probably be cool. And I didn't know anybody in my life that was into that. And so, um, you know, there was this kind of like, um, seeking out seeking out meditation spaces but also keeping it very separate from the rest of my life and my friendships you know like i had my spaces where i did this like you know inner work and then i would just not mention it you know with my like long-standing friendships or my party friends and um and that was actually quite painful for me i realized in retrospect at the time it felt like oh yeah no big deal i have my meditation over here and then i go do this over there and no 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 problem um and the longer i am you know farther i'm away from that period of time the more i think like wow it was um it was painful to have a double life in that way and to not um be not feel like i could be honest with my friends the people that i called my friends about my true interests and my my aspirations and you know my my wish to become a more compassionate person and you know this like struggle around like integrity and ethics like I just um uh it felt um it's uh painful to be divided you know Mm -hmm. internally and um I think that um when I 
and I, I well, just to bring it back to the fear, I think part of it was a fear that um, my friends would like laugh at me or they would just think it was super weird or, you know, like wouldn't get me, which is, I, I think a lot of the reason why we don't share, um, share ourselves and who we really are with other folks. I, there's this um, part of the book, uh, it, it, one of, so the, the book is structured around the um, Buddhist teachings on um, spiritual friendship and these seven qualities in the Mita Sutta, this, this ancient text. And one of them is, he says that a spiritual friend is one who, which I call a radical friend, is one who um, tells you their secrets, you know? And there's something about um, being willing to let ourselves be seen and known that feels so risky, you know, especially when we're changing. And also that that is the very activity of radical friendship to allow ourselves to be seen and known and to, to discover in that if our friends might actually be able to meet us and change with us. Um, and also to know that um, all things are impermanent and it might be that, you know, at certain times friendships run their course. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll say that in terms of sobriety, um, yeah, I was terrified. I, I mean, I, uh, you mentioned the place that alcohol has in our lives, like all, all my social interactions included alcohol that weren't directly related to like, you know, Buddhism or yoga, <laughs> like everything else was, you know, um, was just uh, rife with it. And <clears throat> um, when I stopped drinking, um, the the few people that I that I had in my life and I was starting to get to know who were also sober and were kind of helping support me they said oh probably no one will notice if you go to a party and you're not drinking and I was like okay I'll just I'll just go and have some more and people totally noticed they were like what's up with you are you okay are you pregnant like what's going on you know I was like yeah people <laughs> people people absolutely noticed I wasn't drinking um but but um you know I kind of had to relearn friendship from the beginning, you know, without alcohol, like, I really had to, you know, I called a friend one day because I was invited to an art opening and I knew there'd be a ton of wine there. And I was on my, on the subway platform. Um, I lived off the queue. So I was like, you know, it's outside. So I'd call me <laughs> like, oh my gosh, I'm so nervous. I'm going to think, what do I say? And this friend, you know, who was also sober said to me, well, you know, you go up to someone who's looking at a piece of art and you say, oh, what do you think of this? Or hi, how are you? How was your day today? You know, like, she's like, you asked them a question about them. And I was like, oh gosh, like, brilliant you know like you ask them a question but i think part of the thing that had happened for me you know with alcohol is that actually i i am a shy person you know i do have a lot of anxiety in those moments of just kind of initial connection although once i'm in i feel like i can get rolling and i'm good and my i had some confusion around the idea that um in order to in order for someone to want to be friends with me i had to kind of perform like I had to be the life of the party. I had to be hilarious. I had to be so interesting, you know? And um, what I learned when I put down alcohol is that um, making friends can be as simple as just caring about someone to ask how they are. And that that um, shifting my intention and purpose from like, how can I, how can I make this person like me to how can I care about this person, discover what I like about them was a huge shift in perspective for me that I think I only got because I, because I, I changed that, that part of my life. I'm pausing this episode to remind you about the Sober Curious Reset 
which is a workbook and self-study program designed to guide you through 100 days alcohol-free. I created it to help people apply everything that I've learned over six years of leading the Sober Curious movement to your life today to help you create a sustainable shift to your drinking going forward. Now, I know that 100 days of not drinking can sound a little intimidating, but I designed it that way to give you a real taste of all the benefits of living alcohol-free. Having heard from hundreds of people who have now completed the program, I can also say with confidence that this extended intentional break from drinking can be a game changer. Each day of content poses a different sober curious question. This could be everything from what do I want to make space in my life for today to what am I trying not to feel? Along with a specific teaching on each entry, there is also an interactive exercise for you to engage with. You can get the Sober Curious Reset wherever you buy your books, and you can also join the Sober Curious Book Facebook group to connect with thousands of others who are engaged with this work. I hope to see you there. Now back to the episode. Wow. Yes, that's an amazingly sort of simple framing of that process, actually. And something I hear a lot about from my kind of um, 12-step recovery friends is this idea about how when we're actively in an addiction, if we frame it that way, or when we're actively just very much beholden to that substance, we're very self-focused and we're very self-centered. And we do sort of, the world does sort of revolve around like me, you know, and actually what you just described is, well, what about you? Yeah. You know, but not from, but it's complicated, isn't it? Because you were talking about how I, and I could totally relate to this turning, walking into a room full of people. How do I make sure everybody likes Mm -hmm. me? But if you can hear that languaging, it's about Mm -hmm. me. How can I make sure everybody likes Mm me? Even though it's coming from a place of insecurity and ultimately, um, because I don't really think I like myself, you know, some deep sort of lack of worth in that moment. Mm. Um, the flip, the flip side of it, how can I, how, how can I learn to love all of these people? How can I, what can I discover about yeah. all of these people? That means I will like them, mm. you know? And in a way that is equally like self-serving because what I come out of it with like lots of people I really like, that sounds great actually. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's, it's, it is, <laughs> but it's coming from a place of worth, right? I am worth having great connections in my life. I'm worth having people in my life who I think are fantastic, mm. you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. And, you know, just from a worth perspective, right. Every, every human being in here is worthy and every human in being in here has like the um, incredible richness and complexity that I have inside me. And, you know, mm-hmm. um, I'm g- genuinely curious to find out more about it. And yeah, mm-hmm. you know, it's so interesting when you say that, um, kind of all about me, even though it comes from insecurity and, um, but as I'm going to use the, um, the word that's often translated as conceit is manas. And, um, it means both an overinflation or underinflation of the ego. So it's either, you know, I think I'm so, you know, the grandiosity, but it's also, oh, I'm nothing. I'm nobody. I'm worthless. Um, mm. and either of those, um, polarities, we become self-obsessed and, um, and we can't in that state really pay attention to other people. <laughs> So. Right. Let alone what the world might need yes, yeah, of us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And abroad or what our wider community might, what plot, what role we can play in a wider sort of community effort. And again, I think that that polarity you're describing speaks very clearly to what social media and 
we can maybe talk a bit more about this. What it sort of, so I think social media maybe exacerbates that polarity mm. of one minute feeling like, wow, everybody loves me and everything I'm saying is just hitting the <laughs> is spot on and everybody's liking it. And then the next day, oh, everybody hates me and I'm just a loser and I should delete my email and disappear. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Basically, and not much in between. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. So, well, thank you. Congrats. Congrats on 10 years of sobriety. Oh, thank That's you. amazing. I'm curious, was it your, was it, because um, it was around the very same time that I was first getting sober curious. Mm-hmm. And simultaneously, I first learned to meditate in 2011, so 10 years ago. Um, I didn't go into it like full steam ahead. But when I launched my platform, The Numinous, I became much more involved in that that scene and those kinds of communities. Mm-hmm. And absolutely for me, that really um, fast-tracked my being sober curious and kind of removing alcohol from my life, partly because I was moving in circles where alcohol just was not on the table mm-hmm. and people were connecting with each other and connecting with themselves on a really deep level without this substance. Um, and I wonder kind of if if learning to meditate and really kind of diving into your inner work was what sparked your move away from alcohol or if it was maybe the other way around maybe you were wanting to quit drinking or change your relationship with alcohol and you found meditation as a path out of that lifestyle mm, it was number one definitely I was, okay. <laughs> I was really I mean I was always kind of like a mystical kid you know and I think that that's true of a lot of people who gravitate towards substances anyway like we're you know my my experience mm. is a lot of people who, you know, um, like seek these peak experiences and want to kind of like merge with, you know, the, the universe in some way. Um, yeah. And, and can find, you know, find, um, substances that can, can be in some cases a doorway in, um, uh, you know, before it, you know, unless they then later become, um, kind of a block. And I think that's what some mm. of us find, but, um, mm. Yeah, I was I was really interested in meditation. I was really interested in um you know, I feel like when I heard that, you know, I mean in my own words that this meditation and mindfulness and the Buddha Dharma were these like technologies for freedom. I just wanted that and I didn't I don't think I even it's like what did freedom actually even mean to me back then? Like I don't know. <laughs> You know, and I, I mean, it's something I feel like I try to continuously articulate to me myself even now, like, what, is, what do I really mean by freedom? What, what does it mean to be free? How free can I imagine? But, um, but yeah, I, um, I knew that it was about freedom and I knew that it was about finding uh, relief from suffering. And I knew that suffering was a part of my life too, you know, just like struggling with like depression and anxiety and then looking at all the suffering in the world and feeling like such a, such a sensitive person you know I, I feel like I felt just all of it and um I knew that my relationship to substances was kind of sketchy um I was trying to shift away from away from them and so um like you said you know like finding spaces where actually alcohol and drugs like weren't there you know was so amazing. I was like, Oh my gosh, like people, and I would go to away to these meditation retreats and I would not drink for a week, two weeks, you know, a month at a time because I was at this, you know, spiritual place, like meditating all the time. And then, and then I would come back and then I would start drinking again. Like, Oh, you know, so, um, I, uh, part of what was appealing to me was the way that the, 
that Buddhism in particular talked about working with attachments. And I thought, oh, if I could continue drinking, but just be less attached, that would be really great. <laughs> I would be super, I'd be like, oh, I could take it away. And then, you just articulated <laughs> literally every sober curious person wakes up every morning thinking that. Like, no, maybe not, but. Amazing. Um, and if only. <laughs> and that, you know, I discovered in time, I really tried. Um, and I drink a lot of green juice, uh, but you know, for me, um, I, I learned in time that it, it, um, my mind feels so much more simple and so much less disturbed by just not having it on the table at all. Like the will I or won't I and how much and, you know, today or tomorrow, or it just created this like, um, kind of background scar. Yeah. This background noise that I just was like, you know what? Shut it down. Like just, I don't, I, so, um, so I would say that, yeah, I was, I was, I was in practice, but I was also looking back, I was, um, I was engaged in these practices in a way that was, um, it was helpful for me. And it was also a little bit superficial. Like I kind of liked people seeing me, you know, with my yoga mat strapped to my back, like heading to the studio at, you know, 7am. Like I liked, you know, people knowing that I was like, you know, away in this meditation retreat, they put the vacation responder on like, Oh, I'm sitting in meditation silently for a week. You know, like it was just, it was like, it was still, it was the performance still all about me, man. And um, (laughs) when I stopped drinking, I really, I feel like I was like, Oh gosh, I really need to meditate because of all of a sudden, all of the reasons, I mean, many of them having to do with like my, you know, difficulty or anxiety about connecting with other people, um, all the reasons I drank were so in my face because I didn't have alcohol. And then it was like, mm-hmm. ugh, this is really painful. <laughs> and so um, I feel like I went to these practices with a new level of, um, I want to say desperation, but that actually like led me to, I ultimately, I think a much deeper um, spiritual relationship because, you know, um, rather than using them as a way to kind of cancel out the stuff that I thought I was doing that was like, quote unquote, bad, like, oh, my my bad drinking and my bad, you know, this and that, um, and to try to be quote unquote good instead, Mm. um, I was using them as tools that I could rely on to help me navigate my experience in this life, which, which is, you know, which was complex and did include like lots of different suffering. And I have, you know, challenges that I maybe was born with, or maybe about my person, you know, who knows, but, um, like this idea that I could have, um, one, like practices that would help me work with like my baseline, uh, ability to access states of calm and tranquility and, and ease and to get in touch with kind of who I, who I really am when I get quiet, like that. And that's one of the beautiful things about sobriety for me is just, oh, I'm getting to know myself. I can, and it can be real with myself and that allows me to be real with other people. And then also um, when it comes to like the, the, um, the ethical teachings, the relational teachings, like the one in the book that I could use them almost like compasses to navigate, you know, an experience so that um, I might be in a tough situation and then I could think to myself, okay, well, um, what, 
what does loyalty look like in this situation? Like, what does loyalty look like to myself? What does it mean not to abandon, you know, this other person? And that a question like that or contemplation like that that would come from this body of teachings could actually help me navigate, it would open up possibilities that I didn't think of before um, that could help me continuously like align with my my, my aspiration for, for, for being different, for, for transforming. Um, so that's kind of how it worked. And um, I'm happy that I, I knew about meditation before, before I stopped drinking um, because I, yeah, like I said, I really needed it. And it, it was something that I could really, it, I could access um, uh, without having a, a huge on-ramp. Um, and I feel like, you know, while I had this years of practice beforehand, I feel like the first time I meditated in earnest was like when I, when I put down alcohol. Right. Yeah. Well, like you described, I think when we remove the substance, all as you said, all of the reasons I was using it, meaning all of the discomfort, all the feelings I didn't want to feel, all of the lack of self-worth, all of the self-doubt, all of the questioning, all of the anxiety, <laughs> oftentimes, and especially if we haven't necessarily reached a real rock bottom with drinking, we're not necessarily aware that there's all of that stuff underneath right. and only becomes apparent that we've been using it to medicate once we actually remove it. And what I mean by that is if we've been kind of quite functioning with our drinking, mm-hmm. then it's, you know, we're not necessarily aware of of the, the, the solution that has been providing for yeah. us, let's say. But what you're describing is having already started a deep study of meditation and these Buddhist teachings, particularly around attachment, which I think is vitally important to this path, actually, you then had a practical tool at your fingertips mm-hmm. that you could then apply to navigating because these issues as well, it's not like you can just pop well, the whole point is you can't just pop a pill and they go away. These are foundational parts of our of our being and our makeup. And like you say, whether it's nature or nurture, it's us. And we must grapple with the totality of us when we're no longer, how do I relate to my anxiety? Like, you know, meditation and, and yoga as well, I find extremely on a par yeah. for me with meditation um, is so helpful in navigating it. You can't just make your anxiety go away. Your anxiety is going to be there. The question is, what do I do with my anxiety yeah, yeah. when it is present? Yeah. <laughs> right. And what is my anxiety trying to teach me? You know, what exactly. is it? Like, what is the message here? Like, can I pick up the mm-hmm. phone and just listen? Like, you know, finally, because mm-hmm. it won't stop kind of, I mean, so many, so many of these like kind of in meditation, we talk about them as almost like persistent visitors, you know, that like thought yes. or that, you know, it won't kind of stop coming until we just open the door and say, what, what, <laughs> like, what do you need? Same with alcohol, yeah. that desire for alcohol won't go away until we say, what, mm. what do you want? What do I want with this substance? Uh, you talked about attachment and we kind of had a laugh about like, I wish I could have alcohol without being attached to it. Alcohol will attach to us regardless <laughs> of how much we want to detach from it. Yeah. It's the nature of the beast. And until we've looked at all of the, the things in us that the alcohol is attaching to, the anxiety, the low self-worth, the fear, whatever it is, the alcohol will keep attaching to us. It's kind of how I think about mm-hmm. it. There's a quote from your book about um, where you, sp- you mentioned something when you were just speaking about, I got to really, really deeply know myself, which, which is the only way I can really get to deeply know others. Talking about like, 
I didn't realize how many secrets I had to share mm. until I quit drinking mm. because then the secrets became apparent to me and I realized I was holding all this stuff in, yeah. which again, the alcohol had been suppressing and damping down and helping me paper over. Right. <laughs> But you mentioned, there's a quote from your book, which I love so much. The practice of radical friendship requires that we tell ourselves a new story, that we don't have to choose between being loved and being true to ourselves. Mm. And I absolutely love that quote so much. And thinking about this idea of radical mm. friendship or spiritual friendship in those terms, like I don't have to choose between being myself and being loved or loving mm -hmm. others, mm -hmm. you know? You mentioned as well that um, this idea of liberation, like in the very beginning of our conversation, you spoke about radical friends want liberation for each other. And you mentioned again that you're constantly kind of like defining for yourself, what does freedom mean? What does liberation mean? I'd love if you could just expand a little bit on that. Yeah. <laughs> what does it mean to be free? Is it free of attachments? Yeah. Is it free of anxiety? Like, what is it? I mean, I think it's all of it. You know, I, I mean, um, I think this is one of the places where language is totally insufficient in pointing to an experience that, um, you know, so many wisdom traditions say we can all know for ourselves and, um, it, um, and is also like somewhat elusive and takes, takes some work, you know, <laughs> it takes some work to be free. I think, um, mm. I, I love that you're pointing towards attachment because, uh, that one of the hallmarks of the Buddhist paths of which there are many is that um, the key to freedom is addressing our cl our clinging. It's our tenant, the root of our attachment. And, um, and in that way, as we were talking, I was thinking, wow, like the Buddha really was talking about addiction. You know, it's really was talking about like, this is like, you know, whether it's like to, you know, a substance or a feeling a certain way or have a material um, good or, mm -hmm. you know, um, or even a certain outcome from a conversation or yeah. an action. Yeah, yeah. But this kind of like voracious, like need to have, must to have this way, cannot have otherwise. Um, uh, so that's, I think that's one layer of what liberation means is when um, we are um, like do the work to create the conditions so that the um, the the forces that sometimes obscure the, the that force of playing that sometimes obscures kind of the natural luminosity of our heart with Buddha talks about as Buddha nature you know that like every human being is actually fundamentally good and decent and kind and loving underneath it all and that there are all of these you know kind of um layers of obstruction that we acquire you know um through through families and lifetimes or even through in this lifetime and I think even that for some of us can be a leaf of faith you know the idea that we're not um that we're that we're basically good you know mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. And the idea is that, yeah, liberation is like when, when the conditions are right, so that um, whatever greed that we experience, whatever hatred has clouded our heart, whatever, in whatever ways we've deluded ourselves or allowed ourselves to be deluded, that those, those clouds kind of fall away. And that in the absence of the, in the absence of that, which obscures the natural luminosity of our heart, we are free. Um, so it's interesting because in the Buddhist teachings that liberation is, is not, something that we acquire it's something that we we experience when we let go and um and i think that's part of why it's so hard to talk about because it's not something we get it's something we already have <laughs> you know? right 
and <laughs> right especially in a society where we're conditioned to to get yeah like how can I get rather it than give or just accept and acknowledge mm-hmm. yeah yeah so that that's that I think that's on an individual level how how it be described and I think um you know in uh, you know kind of jump to like the societal level I think that um you know we we can clearly see what liberation is not when we look around us, you know, and um, the um, way that our economic system is structured that is, you know, requires people to be in poverty and maintains poverty systematically, you know, the way that, um, you know, again, our economic system has structured to like profit off of, you know, human beings as capital. yeah, I mean, I could go on, you know, like the prison industrial complex. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I broke into tears this past weekend because the fa- Paid Family Leave Act was not passed. And um, I was just thinking like how, because I just recently had a kid, like yeah. the idea that we're in a society that, that says it cares about families, but then instead, you know, has people going back to work um, when their babies are so tiny and they really need them. And mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. Uh, it just feels like the worst gaslighting, you know? So like that, it's terrible that, um, you know, when we have systems that are designed to keep people so poor and so busy that they can't organize for their own freedom, like that's, that's obviously not liberation. Right. And so, you know, how is it that we, I think at the societal level of liberation requires such profound imagination, um, which means we need time. We need adequate food. We need rest. We need love. You know, we need our basic needs met in order to be able to dream into a society, like a, a, a massive societal shift that doesn't require um, the institutionalization of suffering in order for in order to, to function. Um, right. That some days is a little beyond what I can picture. <laughs> And so when I wrote the book, I did point towards like, there are these amazing, um, you know, I think I see primarily coming out of like black feminism and, um, and science fiction, really these like, incredible imaginations of like, what our world could be. Um, And the assertion that, you know, really, somebody imagined this world that we're living in right now, and we can imagine if we tap into our imagination, we can imagine freedom as something different. so that's, you know, that's what I say about like, kind of like larger scale liberation. And then I think in the middle of that, you know, what does it mean to be free inside of our relationships? Um, I think it is some of the qualities that we've been talking about, like some of it is, um, you know, that just kind of like embodied sense of being able to take up the right amount of space, you know, and to feel that when we take up the right amount of space for us, we're not taking taking too much for some from someone else and we're not shrinking back so that they can you know expand but we're actually like in this right right size relationship with one another i think that's part of it um part of it is being able to like you know be be honest part of it is like to learn to trust ourselves and our 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 integrity such that we can walk through the world and know that we're not going to cause harm at least not intentionally you know like so i think it can mean so many things um uh in in terms of our relationships uh, um and yeah and i still think it's worth articulating i think that we should talk about it all day (laughs) like what is it what does it mean to be free um, am I experiencing, where am I experiencing that in my life right now? Because again, like we all, we all have it. And if we pay attention to those times where we experience a, a, a liberated 
state, you know, um, we can start to incline our minds and our activities toward toward growing that um, and um, and not miss them, not miss them when they happen. Yeah. Like you say, this is such a practice when confronted with so many systemic issues, mm-hmm. which just seem so entrenched and so anti-liberation. Yeah. It's just, um, it's hard, hard work. And I think, again, your book speaks to why solidarity, friendship, collaborationship, community is so, so important for times like these where big change is needed where it's actually okay to be attached to wanting a different outcome from the ones mm-hmm. that we're experiencing. And um, I think that having the support of friends in times like these is just vital. Yeah. So your book speaks clearly to, you know, the notion that friendship is a path, is a vital path, part of the path to social change. Mm-hmm. Could you just expand a little bit on that and explain why that is? Yeah. I mean, part of it... Um... I was thinking of as you were talking is that um, when faced with such difficulty and such challenge and such suffering, it is important also to be able to access the joy in our lives and to remember that you know, part of the deal in this realm is that there is a lot of suffering, but that no, there's no human life that has all suffering and no joy. And there's no human being also that has only joy and no suffering that like part of our actually gift of this realm is that it has this unique recipe of you know each life containing both suffering and freedom and that allows us to um want to wake up and so like if we are locked in fight mode 24 hours a day um and we don't ever rest and we don't ever connect with others we don't have like you know Um, dinner together or a phone call and just laugh and be silly and you know like um it will we will not be able to continue like that is not a sustainable life and and there's something about the mind that has that the 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 heart and mind that can sustain transformative social change work over the long haul needs to have a certain amount of buoyancy so we need actually to remember the reasons why life is worth living. We need to actually remember the beauty that is in humanity, not just the ugliness. Like we need to actually remember those things. And we do those things in friendship, I think a lot of times, you know, um, in a way that sometimes it's available. I love what you said earlier about spousal relationships or, you know, parent-child relationships. It Somehow those moments of unburdened connection seem to be so much more kind of bubbling to the surface in friendships than in these other kind of more proscribed relationships. So I think that's one reason why, you know, friendship is vital to the, to the path to social change. I also think um, within movement work, and um, I'll say like, I don't really consider myself an activist anymore. I mean, I'm a, I'm a willing participant, you know, and I will show the hell up, you know, but I don't, I'm not an organizer um, in that way. I, um, I do know from my years of, of participating as an activist, and I do know from my role now, which is more like supporting activists and change agents, that um, when there's not an intentional practice of caring for one another within movement spaces, those movements start to fragment. And 
it is okay for like an organization or a movement to have a lifespan. Not everything has to last forever, but if it fizzles out before it's made, it's, it's, destined impact because people can't fucking stand each other, you know, <laughs> then that's just a shame. You know, it's a shame. It's a waste of talent. It's a waste of time. And so part of it is like, okay, you know, it doesn't mean that we have to like all be buddy, buddy and hug each other and be nice, but like, how do we be compassionate towards one another? How do we be, um, you know, allow each other to be human? Like how do we um, like not harm one another? Um, so that we can we can transform the world together um and that's that's a part that i see movements more and more paying attention to i mean i think that's actually the real exciting difference of what movement looks like now in 2021 versus what it looked like even 10 years ago and certainly you know back when my parents were participating like that um people are really interested in wellness and how do people not get sick you know from being in the movement and two like really interested in relationship and how do we build in structures before we're in crisis so that we can actually um stay in relationship when things get hard yeah, so so important, and like you say, that um, I do think one of the one of the benefits to hashtag wellness being so widespread, as much as it's been commodified in many ways, I think there's so much more awareness about how important it is to center our well being, emotional and and mental well being, as much as our physical well being, as we do our work in the world. And friendship is such a huge support because yes, what do we really need when we're feeling at the the lowest ebb mm-hmm. is probably someone to cook us a meal or like give us a hug or tell us that we're great. Right. right. <laughs> you know? We actually need another human often in those moments. Oh, yeah. We don't need an app. We don't need <laughs> likes on an Instagram post. We don't need those things. We need a human being to to reflect back to us that we're okay. Right. I wanted to I wanted to finish up kind of asking you about what it actually takes to make friendship. And there's a quote here which I just love on page 34. Um, maybe we can I'll and it speaks to to kind of what you were just speaking about as well. Actually, um, you say friendship is not an identity; it's an activity. Friends feed each other, check in on each other, cheer each other up and let each other be. We help when help is needed and wanted. We do our very best to protect each other from harm. We support each other in accountability when we fail to live up to our values and agreements. We begin again, (laughs) so important. Friendship is something we practice, not because we should, but because we want to, because it restores our access to our full humanity, because it makes life beautiful and meaningful and divine. I think I want to get that on a t-shirt. It'd be a very, very long quote on a t-shirt. No one would actually be able to read it as I walk by. But it would just, for, and what I mean by that is maybe it would be a sticky on my desktop where I'm in this space of really realizing that I need and want to recenter friendship in my lives. So I think that's such a great kind of friendship. It's not an identity, it's an activity. And it's such a reminder that rather than me sitting there waiting, why haven't people called me? Why is no one texting me? to maybe like make the move, mm-hmm. check in on someone, like actually be the one, you know, who's kind of helping make the friendship happen. But yeah, if you have anything else to share about like in this age of social distancing and social media and what are some of the um, the actions of friendship that we've kind of forgotten that we can bring back into our lives? Mm-hmm. You know, the big one that shows up for me in this moment is um, time. 
and changing our relationship to time and how we spend our time. And it is so difficult um, because, um, I mean, I think this, this has been a theme kind of throughout our conversation, but the ways in which our modern society is built to keep us so busy um, that we hardly have time to know how we feel, <laughs> let alone like yeah. ask someone else how they feel, you know, let alone like care for ourselves. Um, I know people, and I've started doing this to um, to block out time to connect with friends, not like any, not like making a date with a friend, like, like, oh, we have a phone date, but just blocking out spaces in the week to connect with a friend that needs or wants to be connected with during that time. Or just, I, I show up, you know, in this like one to 4 p.m. block on my calendar. And I think like, who would I like to call today just to check in on, you know? Um, yeah. There is something about like taking the time to intentionally cultivate relationships and, um, you know, intimacy and connection takes time and sometimes is slow. And um, in the same way as meditation, you know, I think about like my experience of sitting on the cushion and sometimes you know, I just sit and there's kind of like, it's almost like pulling up a chair to my heart and being like, okay, what's going on? And there's just nothing, you know, it's like 10 minutes go by and it's just like crickets. And then all of a sudden I feel like then, then it's like starts in a whisper and then it starts to expand. It's like that, you know, it just takes time even for me to open up to myself, you know? Mm. And I think that, um, yeah, similarly in relationships, you know, like to be able to um, kind of show up and 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 stay there and to see what unfolds in a space um even through like awkward silences and even through you know like uncertainty you know as you're 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 learning or relearning another person um there's something about being willing to to take time and stay stay with an experience um with a friend that allows it to grow um i actually as part of my research discovered that um, it apparently takes a hundred hours of connection to form a close friendship with someone. Wow. And when I think about, I mean, a week, a week long retreat, sharing a room with someone that'll get you a good, ch- use up a good chunk of those hours. Right. But again, like how often do we, do we actually put ourselves in those spaces? If I, like that's a hundred lunch dates, even if I was meeting a friend every week for lunch, that's two years yeah. of, a, wow. of a weekly lunch date, wow. you know, wow. to put it in like, kind of, you know, numerical terms. It's really like such a a eye opener. Yeah. Well, and then when, when, you know, to think about that, it's like, um, we can't have weekly lunch dates with every single person in our lives. So there's something that came up for me around contentment. Um, We're only going to be able to cultivate like deep, deep, powerful friendships with a certain number of people in our lives. Um, Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that we can't take these principles of friendships and apply them in every single one of our relationships. So that's, that's another thing that's really great, right? So we can practice the, the, the characteristics of spiritual friendship in every single relationship with our neighbors, with our friends, with our spouse. I would, I'm sure my partner would love it if I was a better friend (laughs) at times, you know? Um, And when it comes to these kind of deep friendships, we may only have a few. And so there's something about like allowing ourselves and finding that sense of contentment with, you know, not just getting more of what we want in terms of friendship, but starting to want more of what we already have and Mm -hmm. allowing kind of the 
presence with what we already have and the cultivation of that to really like fill up our fill up our hearts fill up our lives yeah I love that I love that and I mean as you're talking I'm thinking yeah I, I know who those people are and this is actually a practice I found myself sort of engaging with as I was reading your book and kind of wading through that chapter I was writing just really thinking okay rather than pining over lost connections or people who have maybe not really met me where I am or whatever it might be who are who are the, who are the people where I really feel there's at least a germ of a connection mm -hmm. with and how can I water how can I water that seed and keep watering it mm -hmm. so that it actually you know begins to bloom again in my life so totally, yeah yeah I think that's a really and this is advice I give to people who are you know people who are worrying that their friendships are going to change after they quit drinking and hang out in different places and want different things from their social lives etc i'll often say even if there's only one person in your life that you really feel you can be yourself with without alcohol prioritize spending time with that person see if they want to hang out more often yeah. <laughs> you know not that you need them now to kind of fulfill you and they're going to become your everything <laughs> but um even if it's just one person, again, appreciate what you have with that one person and let that let you know and remind you that you can have that with other people too, Definitely. you know? Yeah. Yeah. When I was yeah. getting um, sober, they told me to go where it's warm. Yeah. Which I think that mm -hmm. like one, that one mm. person where, mm. you know, I feel like I can be myself with that, that, that sounds like a warm connection. And, you know, I think, I think there is, you know, because of media, like social media, there is this, um, tendency to look at other friendships and idealize them or think like, wow, this group, if I could just get into this group, then I would be, you know, like, like there's that there's this ready-made kind of community there of like best friends. And I just have to find them, you know, or like I found them, but they don't know that I'm supposed to be with them and I have to like, you know, convince them. And I don't think it really, you know, I don't think it really works like that. It's like, um, mm -mm. we can't really tell what it's like inside of relationships just by how it looks, you know? Um, but we know how it feels for us when we're in a relationship that it feels good. And I think leaning more in towards those and knowing that they're 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 so much more valuable to us than cultivating you know what we think might look cool on the outside um yeah 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 well Kate this has been awesome I'm so happy to get to speak to you in person about this book everybody listening it's called radical friendship and what I love about it it is it is so practical there are meditations with each chapter and it's really um like I said, I just found it extremely inspiring. It gave me a lot of hope for my friendships and the connections um, that I'm building in my life. So thank you again for your work and thanks for coming on today. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. Thank you for your, your thoughtful questions. It was just, I learned so much in this conversation. Thank you a lot. Thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with a friend and leave a review wherever you are listening as it just helps more people find the series. As always, this podcast features original music and is edited by alloaudio.com. That's A-L-O-E audio.com.